been a busy week. Uh, I think all of us, many of us, if, you, if you're anything like me, you get to the end of the week, you go, it's been a busy week, and then you do it again the next week. And the next week you say, it's been a busy week. Eventually, you're going to get to all those things when life slows down, when life doesn't slow down. It's been a busy week. Kyrie Elazon, Lord, have mercy on me. There was a high school student whose assignment was to ask a veteran about their time in the service. And so the boy found an older gentleman who served in an active combat situation. And after a few basic questions, he very gingerly, very cautiously asked him, did you ever kill anyone? The vet got very quiet. And then in a soft voice, he says, no, probably, but I can't be sure. The boy responded, I'm sure it was a very chaotic place, and I can understand how it would be tough to know. The man responded, well, yes, but I don't think you understand. I was the cook. <laughs> I love that joke because it takes everyone a minute to realize that it's a joke. Very conscious of telling a story like that, a joke like that, for us to approach Remembrance Day, but I'm told it's a favorite in legions around the country, so we'll get away with it. Whether we've experienced the horrors of war firsthand or not, everyone has battles that they face. Everyone goes through things that are difficult. And everyone has a reason to cry out to God and wonder if he's ever just going to do something. In other words, everyone has a reason to lament. But there's a lot of confusion around that word lament. There's a lot of confusion around what lament means and how we go about practicing it. In fact, it's been my experience, I've known Christian people who've been Christians and Bible-going people for decades who've never actually understood what the word lament means. They've never taken time to understand it. And if you ask them, what is lament? They will say to you, I don't know, there's something in the Bible about it. And that's criminal. Because it's actually a biblical imperative. There's often this hesitancy to offer up true lament to God. Sometimes we do it without realizing it, and other times we should be doing it and aren't. As we've discussed many, many times, 2020 has been a difficult year on everyone. In big and small ways, all of us have felt the impact of a pandemic on our lives. And COVID has only been one part of the reason for our lament, the reason that life has been so difficult, because life has moved forward with zero regard for lockdowns or restrictions or anything else. Next week, I'll get to it. Life will slow down next week. Life never does, because life keeps going whether COVID is a thing or not. Regardless of what stage of, of lockdown the government has us in, life keeps going. And so many of us have moments where we want to be angry, where we want to feel sorry for ourselves, are we just going to scream at God and blame Him for all of our problems? And then we don't. We remind ourselves that good Christians don't do that. Except, that's not true. If you take a look at your Bible, anywhere in your Bible, you will discover that seemingly good Christians are constantly blaming God for their problems. Blaming God for situations that human beings created is a tradition that started with Adam and is going strong today. We create bad situations for ourselves and then we blame God. 
We've been perfecting this throughout all of human history. There's a famous passage in the book of Ecclesiastes that tells us that there is a time for everything under the sun. And there is certainly a time to lament. And I think if there was ever a time to lament, it's 2020. Every book of the Bible includes passages of people blaming God for their situation. Every single one. The book of Lamentations is basically just one long, angry, sorrowful rant at God. The Psalms contain some pretty shocking prayers and, and phrases directed at God and making requests of them that would just stun most church-going people today. We read the Psalms and we pick and choose which ones we read, forgetting that there's a lot in there calling God some pretty shocking things, asking him to do some things that good Christians just don't do. 40% of the book of Psalms is the psalmist crying out to God and lamenting his situation, blaming God for his situation, asking God to do something about this situation. But we tend to think of Psalms as a prayerful, celebratory, feel-good book. Why is that? If 40%, almost half of the book, is the psalmist just going off on God, why is it that we think of it as a celebratory book? Here's one of those paradoxes of the Christian faith that I talk about so often I love, and it's because the two go hand in hand. Anywhere you look in Scripture, being angry at God and blaming God and then turning around and praising Him go hand in hand all throughout the the Psalms were a hymn book and a prayer book in ancient Israel. And 40% of it is lament. So, when's the last time you came to church and got together with people and wept and blamed God for your situation? We don't really do that much, do we? It'd be pretty shocking to show up here and have that happen. Lament is something that the Canadian church avoids. We just don't talk about it because we don't understand it. Because it doesn't seem like good Christians should call God those things. So let's get back to basics. Let's start here. What is true lament? Lament is curialism. It's a time to mourn. That famous passage from Ecclesiastes that says that there's a time and a purpose for everything, that season for everything under the sun, that includes weeping and mourning as well as laughing and dancing, because you can't have one without the other. Lament is one of those things that's going to happen, consciously or unconsciously. We're going to get to that in a minute, but if you think that you're tricking God into the fact that you're not sad or upset, you've got another thing coming. Lament needs to run its course. Lament is not necessarily complaining, nor is it just simply sadness. Lament is actually a biblical, liturgical response to the reality we find ourselves in. One that engages God in the context of our own perceived pain. And perceived there is the, is the key term. Because pain is subjective. Everyone goes through different things. You can't compare one person's pain to another. People are going to experience it the way they're going to experience it. And if anyone can understand that, it's God. In short, lament is the act of crying out to God, and especially crying out to Him with over-the-top, exaggerated language. 
And that's pretty much it. It doesn't much matter what you're crying out to him for. But most often when that happens, it's not just crying out to God with colorful language. It's also doing it while feeling sorry for yourself. How many times did you hear your mother tell you to stop feeling sorry for yourself? Mine still does. I have to see her tomorrow, and I don't know what the conversation's going to entail, but I guarantee you, at some point, she's going to tell me to stop feeling sorry for myself. My mother's a very nurturing woman, but I digress. Contrary to what our mothers told us, feeling sorry for yourself and then blaming God is actually something that can be very good for us. Can be. In the Bible, we see all sorts of examples like this. People sometimes ask for mercy. Sometimes they simply want God to hear their situation. They just need to vent. And sometimes they act God to be vengeful on their behalf. We read these verses often in the Psalms, but we tend to skip over them, where the psalmist asks God to go and smite his enemies. Not God's enemies, the psalmist's enemies. And the situations that people who practice find that practice men find themselves in are almost always the consequences of their own actions. And yet, over and over again, we see them blame God for their situation, and then ask him, go be mean to those people over there on my behalf. I'm in a bad situation, so let's spread it around. Go be mean to those people I don't like. Again, psalmist does this all the time. Blaming God for his actions, and then yelling at him. But you know, I'm here this morning, if for no other reason, than to give you permission to yell at God. Trust me, he can take it. I, I can't imagine or fathom a God who created us the way he did, knows the deepest cries of our hearts, and can't handle it when we get mad at him. I'm not saying he deserves it, but he can handle it. God can handle whatever you're feeling, and I mentioned this a little earlier, but the rub here is that whether we verbalize it or not, whether we consciously express it to God or not, God knows what's in our heart better than we do. And so if you think that you're putting on some kind of mask and acting appropriate in front of God, even when you're feeling anger in your heart, unfortunately, that mask is not doing any good. This is probably the part we're supposed to talk about COVID masks, but I'm going to stay away from that. The idea of an omnipotent God who can see the most inner parts of your heart and know the longings of your heart and then can't handle it when we say, God, this is your fault. Well, again, I can't fathom a God that way. Stop trying to put on an act. Don't flatter yourself. You don't have that kind of power. He sees right through it. And so instead, let's embrace lament. Instead, if he's going to know what you're feeling anyway, let's verbalize it consciously. Yell at God. Be angry at God. He can handle it. Kiri Eleazar. Because to avoid amend is actually denial. It's a failure to recognize the struggles of life. And in the end, it's dishonesty. And then back to what I said at the beginning. Psalms is 40% lament. We think of it as a celebratory book. And that's because lament does not exclude praise. Hallelujah, nevertheless. In the Psalms, lament and praise go hand in hand, 
Because they have to. Because after you're done yelling at God, then you begin to talk to God. In the middle of Lamentations, a book, which is, again, basically just one big rant to God. It's, the, it's after the events of the tumultuous time of the book of Jeremiah. And the first few chapters are all about all the terrible things that are happening and are going to happen. Right in the middle of it, there's a ray of hope. You'll likely recognize some of these verses from chapter 3. Because the Lord's great love, excuse me, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Christian hymns and psalms for 2,000 plus years have been based on those verses. And many people are surprised to learn that they come in the middle of a rant at God. I want to draw out two key points from those verses. The first is God's faithfulness. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He always does what he says. God kept his promise to the people here who are crying out, the people that would suffer exile and lose their nation if they didn't turn from idolatry. He kept his promise. But there's a greater story there, a greater promise. You have to remember Abraham. The nation, of, the nation was prom- that was promised to Abraham was to bring blessing to the Lord. And it did through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even though, even through all of this, Israel, which was split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, they ended up in exile. And even through all that, God remained faithful to his promise, but people couldn't see that. Because that's the thing about pain and sorrow. It has this way of blanking your brain. It has this way of making you not be able to focus on anything else. But the beautiful thing is that our actions cannot thwart the promises of God. Again, let's not flatter ourselves. God's going to do what God's going to do. Our actions can bring upon negative consequences, but the promises of God cannot be undone by human beings. We're not that powerful. God preserved in these times of lamentations a remnant of believers. And even though the nation as a whole had abandoned their God, there were still a select few who were faithful to him. And after exile, he remained true to his promise and returned them to the land. And through that remnant, he gave us Jesus. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Even though it may seem like a long delay from our perspective, we wait on the Lord. Kyrie but those hopeful verses in the middle of Lamentations mention waiting twice. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Waiting is not something that we do very well in Canada in 2020. Everything is instant. We do not wait on God. We want things now. We like instant results. We want results we can see, tangible things that we can put in a performance review or, or, or put before the congregation and say, here's all the things we did this year. Because it doesn't look very good to say we waited on the Lord. 
And that's why it's particularly important in this age. In 2020, just when we thought we were almost done with COVID, things were headed downward here in Saskatchewan. All of a sudden, years and suddenly we had facing the prospect of further lockdowns or restrictions. So what could be more immediate than the need to wait on the Lord? In this church, we spent two years going through transition and looking for a pastor. And all of a sudden he gets here right at the height of COVID and all the stuff that we were energized to do and all the stuff we wanted to hit the ground running and then COVID shuts down. We can't do any of it. So what could be more immediate than the need to wait on the Lord? The Psalms tells us, I waited patiently on the Lord, he inclined and heard my cry. We cry, we wait, and he hears. The Jews at the time of Jeremiah and Lamentations had a long wait ahead of them. In Jeremiah 29, God revealed through the prophet that they would be in exile for 70 years. If you think about that, that means that if you were of age when this started, you would not live to see the end of the exile. You'd never be able to return to your homeland. So does that mean that God failed these people? Of course not. The promises of God would not come to pass in their lifetime. Can you live in faith even when God's ultimate promises may not be fulfilled until after your lifetime? Many of us know the expression, this too shall pass. One of, the, one of my favorite things I saw online was, this too shall pass. It might pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. There's a book that just came out that I'm waiting for to come in the mail. It's entitled, This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers. This too shall last. We don't like to think about that because it can be a real downer. We like to think about the end of it instead of focusing on the here and now. And I'd argue that it's just dishonest because it doesn't reflect our reality. It's okay to look past this. It's okay to look and make plans. We have to focus. We also have to remember what's happening now and name it. Name the grief, name the sorrow, name the things we're angry about. Sometimes God will deliver us quickly from a bad situation, but other times it may last the rest of our life. In Jeremiah 29, listen to these words as God instructs those who are going to be in exile for 70 years. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then we come to a very famous passage in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Even in the midst of exile, there is hope. God's promises remain. Kyrie Rezon. Verse 11 is one of those verses that most of us have heard many times before. And most of the time that we've heard it, it's ripped out of context and meant to mean something it doesn't mean. 
again, most people are surprised to find that it comes at a, at, in, a, <clears throat> in a book and, and chapter where we're talking about being, being sent into exile for 70 years. God is not saying, I'm going to save you now. Let me tell you what the plans I have to prosper you. No, he's saying, you're going into exile. Most of you won't live to see the end of it. But I know the plans I have for you. They were living in a time of delay, in a time of waiting. And there was a gap between the promise, the presence in which they lived, and when it would come to fruition in our realm. The lesson here is that as we wait, it's okay to lament. God leans in and listens to our laments. We worship the suffering God, a God who understands our humanity. That's the beauty of it. A surprising God who was incarnate on this world came down and understands the things that you and I go through better than you and I can. The most amazing miracle of the Bible, the most amazing miracle of all time, is that God became one of us. God the Son became an unborn child and then was born of a peasant girl and understands everything we go through. Jesus suffered more than you or I probably ever will. He ultimately died of suffering. And that is our hope. Because he overcame it, God's promises were new on the third day. That is our hope. Hope in the Bible is a very strong word. It means a confident expectation of a future that we have in Christ. It's not some abstract concept. Because, again, God experienced exile too. He left the glories of heaven to come be one of us. It boggles my mind a little bit that an omnipotent God who's not bound by time sent a whole nation into exile already knowing exactly what that meant, understanding it intimately. But it's Quite all right, because we live waiting for another thing. We live after the first coming of Jesus, but before he comes again. We wait in the intermediate period. We wait on the Lord. God's plan for this world is not complete yet, and so we wait. We wait with hope, we wait with praise and lament. We laugh and we weep. Have I annoyed you enough with that yet? Have I annoyed you with those two little words that most of you probably don't recognize yet that I just seemingly throw in there at random? I do lament that. Kyrielism. Two Greek words. Two words that unto themselves actually constitute a prayer, and not just any prayer, the most common prayer found anywhere in the Bible. It's a prayer that's found in its Hebrew form all over the Old Testament. And then it's found in its Greek form all over the New Testament. It's found whenever people are going through times of difficulty. It's found when people are lamenting. Just this week, Alicia and I were discussing Bible translations. We were discussing ones that we like and don't like and why and the strengths and weaknesses of them. And I mentioned that the Evangelical Church 
our pensions, our, our tendency is toward literal translations, word-for-word -word translations. I think most of the time that's a good thing, but sometimes word-for-word -word translations cause us to lose something. And this is one of those times. Because Kyrie eleison is more than just the two words. It's simultaneously a prayer, a feeling, and a cry. And we can't quite capture it in English. Our Bible usually translates it something along the lines of, Lord, have mercy on me. Again, it's the most common prayer throughout the Bible. Lord, have mercy on me, and now let me tell you how hard I've got it. Lord, have mercy on me. But those two words, Kyrie eleison, again, it's more than just Lord, have mercy on me. It is a state of being, a state of sorrow. When Jesus came the first time, it was as a suffering and humble servant to die on the cross. And he is asked, he is, he is addressed by people more than 17 times in the Gospels. They begin with Kyrie eleison. They say, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And then they ask him to perform some miracle. Our Bible ends with the words, come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Again, we wait. Kyrie is our Lord, have mercy on me, have grace on me, and then we are reminded in the very last verse of our Bible. Where it says, come Lord Jesus, the grace of Lord Jesus will be with God's people. When Jesus came, it was to be a suffering, humble servant. But when he comes the second time, he will be empowered in glory as a righteous judge and a conquering king. And everything that was wrong will be set right. There will be no more lament. There'll be no reason for it. And this will come to pass because God has answered the prayer that his people have been praying for more than 6,000 documented years. Curialism. Because in the end, God's promises are always kept. He will keep his prayer and have mercy on his people. Normally, at the end of a sermon, as I approach it, this would be the time that I would ask us to pray together. And, and I'd like to do that this morning. But I'd like to do it in a way that I think the psalmist would actually be pretty proud of, I hope. And I'd like to pray through a song. There's a modern worship song that manages to capture the, the spirit, the heart of the Kyrie Eleison. Many of you may be familiar with the song, many of you won't. I know it hasn't been played here in this church before, but I've asked Jess to play it. And even though we can't sing together during this time, in the same way that when we pray collectively, one person actively expresses the words, everyone is praying together, I'm going to ask that we sing this and do the same thing. One person doing the speaking, all of our hearts praying together. Let's pray this prayer, Kyrie Eleison. 